Good morning and welcome to Score Values on 670 The Score. I'm Adam Staczynski. Coming up on this week's show, we discuss injury prevention in youth football as well as concussions in the NFL. Plus, a reporter for The Athletic discusses his story about diversity in the NHL. Concussions and overall injury prevention is always an ongoing discussion throughout the nation when it comes to football at all levels. I spoke with Dr. Nikhil Verma. He's the director of medicine at Rush University. He's also head team physician for the White Sox and assistant team physician for the Bulls about both of these important topics. And so, Dr. Verma, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. So... Youth football and injury prevention is is something that has been talked about for years. So I I want to first ask you a more general question, and then we can kind of dive into details. So when it comes to youth football, and not not necessarily, and we will talk a little bit about the professional level a little bit later, but when it comes to youth football, do you believe that, I mean, in Illinois, throughout the country, we're doing a good job of injury prevention? I don't know how to define good job, but what I'll say is that we're certainly doing a much better job now and are much more cognizant and responsive to the issues than we were, say, even five years ago. And I think that certainly we're learning a lot about injury prevention. I think concussion is the hot topic Mm -hmm. in youth sports, and that's one where we're uh, investing a lot of time and energy to continue to get better. I don't think we're as good as we can be, but I'm happy about the course of uh, dedication and kind of focus on the injury prevention mm-hmm. aspect of football that's going on right now. And I, we will certainly talk about concussions a, a little bit later, because as you said, I mean, that's that's been a, a huge topic of discussion for a long time in, in, all, in all levels of football. So when we do talk about avoiding injuries, and, and you know, we, we can say youth football, but at all levels of football, I know that one of the, the things that we're pointing to here is limiting contact in practice. So this might seem obvious, but but when we talk about limiting contact, how limited? So, it, it, you know, there has to be some form of contact in practice allowed, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't play the game on Saturday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, depending on what level you're mm-hmm. at, uh, if you're not having some contact during the year. Uh, but I think what we're recognizing is that you can have a balance between skill work, conditioning work, uh, drills to establish uh, you know, different phases of the game, and then contact where necessary. But I just think what we're saying is you've got to be thoughtful about when is contact really necessary to develop uh, skills like tackling, and when can we accomplish the same task by lowering the risk for the athlete. And so, obviously, tackling, and this is something that was pointed pointed out here when I was doing research for, for this for this conversation, it, coaches are teaching a new way to tackle is what was being noted. And so you know, I'm thinking about to my playing days and I played in high school in the late 2000s. And so has it, it been even since then that there's a new technique for tackling that they're teaching? Yeah, I think, you know, you see this on Saturdays all the time in college football, right? This new uh, penalty that comes up uh, for um, – meeting with the head and targeting, so to speak. And so I do think we are teaching individuals to tackle with their body, to not lead with the head, to have the mask up, see what they're going to hit, and try to establish a tackling box that goes from the shoulders to, you know, essentially above the knees. And I think if we do that, we can uh, decrease the risk to both 
been tackling, as well as the athletes who's getting tackled in terms of, number one, the head injuries, mm-hmm. but also some of the, the lower extremity injuries that we see when, when players are going low in a tackling scenario. I'm curious how, you know, if, if how did, and I know that teaching proper technique is a huge piece of preventing injury. So I'm curious how you balance now, how you can teach, really teach proper technique while also being cognizant of limiting contact in practice. Yeah, so I, I think that that's a challenge that we face. I think the key is you've got to start teaching the technique early on, right? It's very hard to change rules in the middle of, say, uh, a professional sport. So I think that's why we see a lot of confusion even now about NFL rules and what you know what is a roughing the passer call and what's not. The rules are somewhat nebulous, and they continue to evolve in terms of what's allowed and what's not. But I think that given that we're now in- introducing these concepts early on, when players are learning to play the sport, that's when we really have the opportunity when we're doing, you know, just tackling drills to, to teach them what the proper method is. And then it's, it's ingrained for on a go forward basis. And that you're mentioning there kind of brings up something I was, I was discussing with some of my friends even just a week or two ago about when kids should be able to start doing the actual actual tackle football you know for instance I started playing tackle football when I was in seventh grade and so what age in in, in your opinion do you think is is safe and okay for children to start playing full contact football yeah I think what's interesting is you know we don't see a lot of the traumatic injury in the younger kids and I think a lot of that is they they just don't have the speed and the mass yet to really create the significant injury risk that we see in older individuals. So I think when we talk about the tackling and the issues with injury, what we're really talking about is the head injury and the mm. concussion aspect of it, which is the biggest risk. And I think for most of us, that is the the uh, early teenage years when we start to feel comfortable introducing that into the game. Got you. And, and the next thing I want to talk about is, obviously, this is seem obvious, but using safe equipment is something that is, is, of course, huge in preventing injury. So my question to you would be, how have you seen the equipment evolve in the game over over the years? You know, of course, they have these different styles of helmets that are supposed to be that are supposed to help with head injuries and stuff like that. So, so when you look at those, how, how do you view the, the newer types of equipment that are being used in the game? Yeah. So we sound like a broken record here, right? Because most of the innovation and equipment that's happening is, is to protect the head and it's the concussion side. Mm-hmm. And I think really the big innovations that are happening and, and these are being tested at lower levels is helmets that are able to detect load and transmission of load so that they can almost alert you when it, when a tackle has occurred or an impact has occurred that would be sufficient to cause a player a concussion. Mm. Now, what that would do is obviously we've seen this in the NFL in just the last couple of weeks, right? It's how do you know a player's had a concussion? What's the protocol to make sure that it's safe for them to repair, uh, return to play? The first thing we have to do is to acknowledge that we don't always know when a player's had a concussion. And so if we have technology that helps to alert us hmm. that the patient, the player's been involved in a play where uh, uh, there was a high enough level of force or contact to the head that a concussion should be suspected, then, you know, that's a valuable piece of data for the medical staff to have. What's critical is we have to be able to understand how to use that data, because if we have these helmets that are so sensitive that every play we've got five or six players that are registering a potential concussion, 
you know, at some point you no longer have a team on the field because everyone's being evaluated for a concussion. So I do really believe that, that the next biggest innovation is going to come in terms of technologies within the helmet that help us to earlier diagnose, identify patients that need to be screened, and then uh, properly address them in terms of whether it's safe for them to return to play or not. It's interesting. That sounds fascinating. And so since we, we've been kind of dancing around the idea of concussions, we'll go ahead and dive into that a little bit more here. When you, you touched on it, we saw even in the last couple of weeks, concussions have yet again become a, a huge topic of discussion at the NFL level. We saw, you know, the Miami Dolphins quarterback go down with with what some people were saying with a head injury. They said it was a back injury. He comes back and plays four days later, and then he definitely leaves with a concussion. And, and that yeah. sparked a huge debate. So I, I guess I first want to ask how, how you saw that situation unfold and what your reaction was. So I think there's a couple things that people should really understand when they're thinking about an issue like this. Number one is that the diagnosis of a concussion is not always easy to make, meaning if I x-ray you and you've got a broken bone, we can all agree that you've got a broken bone. Mm -hmm. But when somebody has a suspected concussion, we go through a series of protocols that involve physical exam maneuvers, mental testing, mentory testing, and other aspects of just coordination, balance, those types of things. Uh, And sometimes symptoms of concussion don't show up until a delayed fashion. So it's important to understand that it's not a black and white diagnosis, which means it can be very challenging in these game time decisions where you're evaluating a player for five to seven minutes and you've got to make a uh, a, a sideline decision about return to play. So that's number one. Number two is I think people really have to understand the structure that's in place in the NFL to address this situation. And the structure is such that there is an independent consultant in every game that is not affiliated with any team. And they do that because they do not want any pressure on the medical staff to say, in a situation like this, it's the fourth quarter, our star quarterback, we need him back in the game, it's our chance to win. Mm -hmm. They want to take that out of the hands of the people that are, uh, you know, making decisions into somebody who's independently focused solely on the athlete's health. And that is the person who actually gives the ultimate green light for somebody to return to play. And so I think that this is unfortunately continues to be the limitation of our ability to rapidly identify and diagnose concussions uh, in terms of returning a player to sport. And, you know, if, if a player comes off, they're feeling well, they're mentally responding appropriately. They don't have any focal neurologic deficits. They have no complaints that are concussion related. And Mm -hmm. then they pass all of our injury screens. That's the best that we can do at that point in time. Now, the assumption one makes is that all of those processes were followed and, you know, knowing kind of the way that the professional sports works, uh, I would be surprised if they wouldn't, weren't followed. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it's not about who's at fault. It's about continuing to understand that there are just limitations as it stands now in ter- terms of how quickly we can identify and actually proceed with treatment for a concussion. And uh, a follow-up I would, I would have to that is, I guess, the, one of the reasons we want to be so cautious about identifying when there's a possible concussion is the idea of, of this this thing called second impact syndrome, which I don't think everyone quite understands. So could you could you talk about for me, please, what second impact syndrome is and why it can be so dangerous if a concussion is not identified properly and a player is sent back out? Yeah, so it, it is a great question, and it's a great thing for people to understand. And the basic way to explain it is that if your brain has sustained an injury and you get back before the brain, quote-unquote, is fully healed, 
the level of impact necessary for the brain to sustain a re-injury is lower, mm. and the sequelae of that re-injury is much more significant. So if you have a concussion, you're returned uh, early on, and you have a second concussion, the amount of force necessary for that second concussion is lower, and the symptoms that you'll have associated with that second concussion are markedly higher, to the point that some people can actually have, uh, you know, traumatic brain injury that's permanent and or in rare cases, you know, can result in swelling on the brain and death. Mm. So that's why we take it so seriously. It's a, a particularly worrisome problem in the younger athlete group, which is why, you know, the rules are such that at the high school level, you know, even if a, a player has a suspicion of a concussion, they're out of a game until they're cleared by a medical professional, uh, you know, for the next outing. And so mm. I, I think obviously when the level of competition is less, when we're dealing with amateur athletes compared to professional athletes who understand the risk and are being compensated uh, for participation in the game, obviously nobody wants to put anybody at risk, but we've got to be mm. particularly careful with our youth athletes. And the, the the last thing I do want to ask you about concussions, you know, you, you talked about the concussion protocols that the NFL has and I, I think we can all agree the NFL and every level of football is doing better identifying and taking concussions seriously. So if there is anything the NFL could do better, what do you think it would be? So I think where the NFL really needs to spend some time is to continue to support research about uh, not just concussion, but traumatic brain injury in, in general. Because I think what we're finding is that, as I talked about earlier, you know, we can, discuss, we can diagnose and identify significant concussions but the problem that we're really struggling with is how do we identify the sequelae and the significance of players that have sub-concussive impacts on a repetitive basis Mm. right and that's the one that we don't fully understand yet meaning a player can go their whole career and maybe have one concussion or two concussions but has a a significant long-standing issue uh, that's probably due to the sub-concussive forces that happen on a game in and game out basis. And so that's where I think the next level of safety is going to come in and helping to understand, can we measure the cumulative effect of multiple hits that occur over the course of a career? And and I appreciate all your input on, on especially concussions here, Dr. Verma. And and I know that we, we we talk a lot about it, but it it really is something that we talk uh, on, on sports radio and all across the country about it's the number one, injury thing we tend to talk about right now, but there are other injury risks when it comes to playing football. And and something, the final thing I want to ask you is something that was interesting that was pointed out here is a misconception of playing on field turf and, and the idea that injuries could be greater on artificial turf. And that's not exactly true. No, it's not. And in fact, the data is very mixed here. And part of the problem is that the, Uh, field turf continues to evolve in terms of how it's produced and the different types of field turf that are out there. You know, most of the time when you think about turf, people think back to the old AstroTurf days of, uh, you know, the indoor stadiums of past, where we we did understand that those were too grippy as a surface and did contribute to injury risk. Uh, But if you look at the more contemporary surfaces, there's solid data that would indicate that players are any more at risk on a regular surface, a grass surface, compared to a, uh, a, a newer turf surface. That's number one. And number two is, you know, we have to take into account that not all grass surfaces are the same, right? In Chicago, mm-hmm. we know that better than anybody. 
that it can be very hard in some of these environments to maintain a playable grass surface. And so, yeah, maybe if you have an optimized grass surface in a place that can maintain it throughout the football season, there might be some improved margin of reduction of injury. But that's not true in places like Chicago or other cold weather environments where we're playing into January. Interesting. That's something I'd never thought about. Well, well, Dr. Verma, I appreciate your time, and thank you so much for all the great information today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. And that was Dr. Nick Hill Verma, Director of Sports Medicine at Rush University. He is also the head team physician for the White Sox and the assistant team physician for the Bulls. Up next, Mark Lazarus, who covers the Chicago Blackhawks for The Athletic, recently did a deep dive study about the lack of diversity in the NHL. He spoke about that story and much more on the Bernstein and Holmes show this past week. Do you think from the people around hockey that you've talked to that there is legitimate concern and care about this, or do you think that it's lip service? Uh, it's both. I mean, there's it, 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 like any other business, right? There's people that really genuinely want to do good and make things better. There's people that want to just monetize having more fans. And there's people that are like rolling their eyes at all this going, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to say this stuff and send out these tweets and these messages and these corporate statements of, you know, Black Lives Matter and whatnot. I mean, it's there, there, there's there's a little bit of everything. There are people in hockey that absolutely want hockey to be for everyone. Like the uh, their, 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 their slogan says, the hockey is for everyone campaign. There are great people in hockey. I've been in hockey for a while now. It's, it's an incredible, welcoming, you know, uh, likable people that, that want you to be part of the club here. But, you know, I'm also a white dude. So it's, it, it, there's, there's very few clubs that I can't do that with. It's different if you're, if, if, if you're not a white man in, in a lot of sports, but in particularly hockey, you know, it, it, there's, there are people that are just openly hostile to your presence. There are people that want it to continue being just, hey, this is a white Canadian sport, and let's keep it that way. But, but see, what I always have found interesting about that is the idea of – I know a lot of hockey fans, and I've interacted with at least enough Blackhawks fans. Let me just say that. Enough Blackhawks fans where they're like, well, wait, why aren't more people paying attention to our great sport? And I agree with them that the sport is great. But in the same vein, they're the same people that are trying to mansplain the game to me <laughs> While I'm sitting there watching the game with them, I and, and I keep wondering, like, do do they is some of the snobbery is it connected to what what is like it's mine and I only want it to be mine? That's punk rock. Yeah, that's a hundred percent hockey more than any other sport. It's this very insular thing, and because it's always been kind of like you know the redheaded stepchild of major North American pro sports, you know, the, people have gotten protective over it over the years rather than trying to make the tent bigger. They try to keep you out, right? Because they like you don't understand. You don't get this. You don't know why this is great. No, we don't want you here. And you know when the Blackhawks got really great in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, you know any new fan that came aboard, oh, bandwagon fans, we don't want you here. Like, why wouldn't you want more people to like the thing you like? And you know Chicago embraced the Blackhawks. Like I remember, you know, uh, driving through the West Side, and she must be like a 130 year old black woman, and she's wearing a Marion Hosta jersey. I mean that's. You would not have seen that five years earlier. It was great. It was great to see that. And the Blackhawks have made great strides in that regard. You know, they have a more diverse, but just anecdotally being in every single rink uh, as I've been over the years, the Blackhawks do have a more diverse fan base than most. But holy crap, it's still like 95% white when you're in that building. It's still overwhelmingly male. And the Blackhawks have a huge female fan base and, 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 and more people of color in their fan base. But it's still, 
it doesn't match up to like, you know, go to an NBA game, go to an NFL game, even go to a baseball game. It's just not the same. The job you did with the data was a really good one with the diversity and inclusion report. 83.6% of NHL league and team employees identify as white. 3.74% identify as black, 3.71 as Hispanic or Latino, and 4.17% as Asian. Meanwhile, 36.81% of the league employees are women, and less than 4% of the league identifies as LGBTQ+. And then you say, well, okay, how does that compare to the other sports? Well, the numbers are all there. The numbers are there. And, well, and here's the thing. I, I, I feel like this needs to be said. is like, if you had done this survey five years ago, would have been so much worse. The NHL really has made significant strides. I mean, there are, I think, six women assistant GMs now in the NHL. That's great. There's more black players. That's great. But all this has happened in the last couple of years. So there's been progress, but it just shows how far behind the NHL is to other sports. They're doing a good job, but it's they have so much ground to make up that it's just when you look at the numbers, it's stark. But, I mean, God, if you've done this survey in 2010 – it would have been probably 90-something percent white. But, and that's because there has been a lot of work done. And I have been proud to march in the Pride Parade with a group of hockey organizations, whether it's been uh, Pride Tape, which is the rainbow-colored tape that's designed for hockey sticks. Or Brent yeah. Sopel being out there the, at the Pride Parade the, with the yeah, that cup. Was, that, was, that was groundbreaking when Sopel did that. that. He was the first to do that. Well, the You Can Play team has done a, a, a tremendous yep. job with um, what, what Berkey. Chicago the, Gay Hockey Association. Yeah, the, Exactly. Chicago Hockey Association, there have been groups. So I I think sometimes it's a little skewed when when, you know, those of us who have gone out of our way to to be a part of that community. And when you look at it on on the national level, you said the word Canadian, which is important here. And while Canada, you I my experience in Canada has been that as a country is multicultural, multilingual and very welcoming. Yes. And super welcoming. Why is it that their national sport isn't a, a similar reflection of the country as a whole in that regard? Well, it, 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 it's improving too. All right, you got you got like hockey night in Punjabi now. Yep. I mean, there there has been a lot of progress in Canada too. It's just again, hockey is so far behind the curve that you know, it, hockey's always behind the curve. Like they're just coming. Like in the last several years, we've just discovered oh, analytics in hockey. It's been in baseball for you know for decades. Hockey's always behind the curve, and this is just one of the most glaring examples of how kind of, uh, you know, they'll probably say traditional it is, but just how, you know, old-fashioned it is and how out-of-date it is and archaic it is. And I do think that there are there is real momentum being built, but these numbers just underscore how how far they have to go and how behind they've been, and it really, really shows you just what it's been like to be a player or a fan of color, a woman, anything like that for the last, you know, several years now to see the rest of the world moving on and hockey not. You were a part of the reckoning that that came to pass with the Blackhawks and covering the, the sexual assault stories with the Blackhawks. Obviously, with Hockey Canada right now, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on. How have you felt that hockey – the capital H has dealt with these stories. And do you think that that is another way that they could do a better job of bringing more fans into the sport? Yeah, they've done a terrible job. I mean, you know, just the fact that these exist all over the place. And, you know, look at Ian Cole of the Tampa Bay Lightning, one of the most liked players in the NHL. If you talk to any reporter, 
you know, was was accused of of, of grooming an underage woman uh, uh, by an anonymous Twitter account. And the Lightning suspended him with, you know, with pay until pending the investigation. The NHL could not get in contact with this person. So they cleared Cole because there was no evidence. And then the NHLPA comes out with this. How dare you suspend someone with no evidence and yada, yada, yada. You know, this is this is where we're at. And, and you know, if you're a woman and you're watching the NHL and you keep seeing this, you see what happened in Hockey County. County. You're talking about a gang rape. And, you know, every almost every member of that World Juniors Canadian team is in the NHL right now. Two of them are on the Blackhawks, Taylor Radish and Boris Kachuk. Everyone's denied it. Everyone's put out statements. They're all cooperating. That's great. But there's these huge question marks over, you know, uh, 20 players now in the NHL, and we might not ever get answers. Does anyone really have faith the NHL investigation is going to unearth the truth here and that there's going to be consequences? No, because there never has been in the past. Hockey Canada has had two different slush funds to settle lawsuits like this. It's just bad news after bad news after bad news of just how, you know, just just how bad the system is right now. Just how broken the hockey culture is. Yeah, and reading what I've read from TSN and elsewhere, just the, the pressure on Hockey Canada to essentially disband and reform, that it has to actually yep. be dissolved before anything can can happen of consequence there. And it, it's really persuasive stuff that you read. Now, what I want to know from you, though, Mark, is I, 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 can, I can speak personally that ever since the Rocky Wirtz outburst, whatever you want to call that unfortunate day when they had their relaunch and they were trying to roll everything out anew and he had that complete freak out, that, that's when I sort of closed the laptop and I said, no, I'm done with this team for a while. I just can't. I can't be talked to like that. I, 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 won't, be, I, it's, I won't be treated like that. And you're just not going to have me for a while. And it's gonna, I'm going to need some time in the proverbial wilderness before I come back. Do you, how badly has that hurt them, if at all? Are there, are, there, are there fans who feel like I feel or people like, yeah, whatever, the, that, that's just Rocky. He just says stuff. There are absolutely fans that feel that way, that have cut off ties to the team altogether. But I don't think it's really hurt the bottom line. I, you know, the losing is, right? The, the, the tanking is. The trading Alex Dabrinkit is. That's what's really hurting them, and that's what's going to hurt them. You know, Scott Powers and I sat down with uh, Jamie Faulkner and Danny Wirtz yesterday to talk about stuff like this for a long time. And we'll have a story out next week, I think. Um, I really do believe that, that Danny Wirtz and Jamie Faulkner want to do what's right here. And they've done good things and they have made the Blackhawks a more welcoming place and they are trying to affect change in hockey. But you know, with, with Rocky still the nominal head of the company after what he said, it's hard to take any of it seriously. And I don't, I don't think he's really doing much of the day to day. I do believe he's basically signing checks at this point. And there's something to be said for the fact that he's willing to invest and spend his money on these initiatives. The Blackhawks are doing to make things better. That's fine. But, you know, as long as Rocky Wirtz is at the top of your, your masthead, it's tough to, to look at the Blackhawks and say that they're doing things the right way, right? He, he, he clearly showed a callous disregard for what Kyle Beach went through. He was bothered that he had to pay money to somebody for something that happened that he didn't have anything specifically to do with. And he, never, he, he, he showed no remorse, right? And if you're a, if you're a fan of conscience, that, that's difficult. That's difficult to, 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 to square. And, you know, you're not going to – I don't think most fans have abandoned the Blackhawks. I think fans are, you know, looking at a team that's not going to win a lot of games and they're maybe like, oh, maybe they'll watch the, Bears, the Bulls tonight or something like that. Uh, they'll be back. And I, I imagine you'll be back too. That's the thing about hockey is once you're in, you're in, right? It's really hard to cut that tie. But there are fans that certainly look at the team a lot differently uh, than they used to. And fans around the league 
that's the biggest thing is the, 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 the once golden franchise of the NHL is so tarnished now, and it's going to take a very long time for Danny Ward and Jamie Faulkner to rebuild that credibility. I do believe that's their goal, right, is to rebuild the trust and the credibility so that people aren't making these snarky comments on Twitter every time you mention the Chicago Blackhawks. How much faith do you have that the NHL and Hockey Capital H will make all efforts to try and get to a better place? They will because it's in their financial interest. It's that simple. The only thing that matters in any billion-dollar business, any business really, but especially a billion-dollar business, is money, right? It's the bottom line. And it's in the NHL financial interest to make hockey, to not have these stories written about hockey all the time for one thing, but also to have a larger fan base. And the only way you're going to have a larger fan base is if you do reach out to communities of color, if you do reach out to you know, women, and you do make the, the, the tent bigger, and you do make hockey a, uh, you know, a less toxic place. Because like I said, I love hockey. I love almost everybody I've ever met in hockey is, is great. It's such a, I, I want everyone to experience the hockey that I experience. I want to create entry points for fans so that they can experience hockey the way I experience. I love it. It's the best. I've been in every sport, and nothing's better than hockey. The hockey community is great, but you have to break through that wall of toxicity, those gatekeepers that are out there. They're the loudest ones, right? And they're the first line of defense. They're the ones yelling at you and telling you you're not wanted. So it's in the NHL's financial interest to move those people aside and to make it more welcoming and to make the culture better because it will make them more money. So they, they are determined to do it, but it's for cynical reasons. Well, stay on it, Mark Lazarus, because uh, you're doing great work keeping track of uh, their efforts or lack thereof. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, I appreciate it. And that was athletic reporter Mark Lazarus speaking with Dan Bernstein and Lawrence Holmes. That's it for this week's edition of Score Values on 670 The Score. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about on a future edition of our show, or if you'd like to share information about an upcoming charitable event, send us an email at scorevalues670 at gmail.com. I'm Adam Staczynski. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Score Values on 670 The Score.